everyone, and welcome back to the Fellowship Greenville Students Podcast. We're continuing our series called Practicing the Way of Jesus and doing a part two from last week where we continue looking specifically at the practice of silence and solitude. This week, we look at silence and solitude from the angle of emotional health and healing as we navigate the story of Elijah in the Old Testament and see through his journey how we can better understand what we're feeling, how God takes care of us, and how to gain clarity on our next step. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy this message. Welcome, everyone. Hello. All right. Good to be with you guys tonight. Welcome again to Fellowship Greenville Student Ministries. Uh, My name is Matt Densky. I serve here at Fellowship as a student ministry pastor. Uh, It's a great joy of mine to be here with you. Thanks for being here with us tonight to worship, to gather together as people. people of Jesus, and, and to come into a place and to surrender to His Word and to seek the Spirit in, in applying His Word. We have begun a series we've been in now for a few weeks. It's called Practicing the Way of Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but for the first couple hundred years, people who believed in Jesus were not called Christians. They were called followers of the way. There was this very distinct idea and way of talking about them. These are people who live their lives like that Messiah, that was, or, or like that rabbi, that was murdered, and they claim he's alive, but, but they, they operate by his way of living. They're followers of the way. And so, adopting that idea, we've been in this series, and we've been looking into what was the way of Jesus. Or in other words, how did Jesus live his life? And one of the foundational ideas of this series, as we've been navigating, and, and I think beyond this series is that it is impossible for us to experience the life Jesus offers unless we also embrace the lifestyle that Jesus modeled. In other words, our following of Jesus is not just a cerebral approach where we believe that he's real, but it's, it's a holistic approach where we begin to adopt the ways of his life and the values of his life. Now, we believe a couple thousand years ago there was a 30-year-old Jewish man named Jesus, and he was an itinerant rabbi, and he traveled around the country of Israel, and he performed miracles, and he taught the Word of God, and and we believe he was Messiah. And and we're looking at him, and we're saying, well, what were the values of his life? And if we really want to experience the life he offers, based out of John 10.10, I've come to give life and give it to the fullest for those who follow me. What is that life? Well, it's his lifestyle. And so we've been looking at that for the past few weeks, and we've been kind of talking about this idea of practicing the way of Jesus. So the first few weeks were foundational. Last week, we dipped into our first practice, which was silence and solitude. And this week, we are going to stay on that practice. Yeah, Yeah, of silence and solitude. This is silence and solitude, part two. Part dos. Threw a curveball there. You guys, this is how my son counts in Spanish, because I just said dos, I was thinking about it. My son says, uno, cinco, dos, tros, and then he ends there. He's the cutest. I do have kids. I have kids. I don't know if you guys, I know. I do. I do. Anyway, this is, I have three. I have three kids. This is, this is part dos of our, of our uh, practicing silence and solitude. Now, You may be wondering, are we going to do two weeks or more on each practice? The answer is no, we are not. Most weeks will have a one-to-one ratio, which is probably what you thought. However, I said this last week. I was having dinner with a friend of mine this Friday night, 
And he said, dude, I listened to your sermon from last Sunday, and you said this statement. And I was like, oh, what'd I say? And he said, you said that a lot of our, like, if you look over the past couple thousand years, a lot of the primary teachers of our faith would point to silence and solitude as the most important practice or habit to begin to develop. And it, it kind of rocked him because it's like, man, if you put all the practices on the table of like, you know, fasting and praying and reading God's word and living generously and living minimalistically and, and all these things to say, man, silence and solitude seems to be historically the priority for the, the, the people in our faith, the, the master teachers in our faith. And so therefore I thought, dude, let's have two weeks on it, right? At least two weeks. Because my hunch is, if you were here last week, you came and you listened to the sermon and then you went home. And you got wrapped up in like catching up on a show that you're streaming or um, you got some texts and there's some drama going on in your life and you're like just consumed with drama or conflicts or whatever. Or your dating relationship is struggling and your boo is like not really seeming like they're caring about Valentine's Day. And it's probably because you don't have the, the LED heart headband and we try to help you out with that stuff and give you the effects for your love life there. But whatever the, whatever the reason, you probably heard my sermon and just got back into your normal routines and rhythms of life. And then Monday rolled around and guess what? You're in school. And maybe you even thought, oh, okay, I, I tell you what, tonight when I get home from school, I'll, I'll start. And then probably something happened and you're like, okay, Tuesday morning, I'm going to wake up early and try. And the reality is most of you, my hunch, I hope I'm wrong. I hope you engaged in it. But my hunch is most of you heard my sermon from last week about cultivating the practice of silence and solitude, and you probably didn't put it into practice. That's my hunch. Believe it or not, believe it or not, most people hear my sermons and they're not radically transformed by them after one hearing. Can you? I know, it's crazy. It's wild. It's like, wow. But I, I get it. I get how life is. I get how busy things get. I get how good intentions don't always manifest in um, actions that follow. And I think this one is so important, silence and solitude. I think it's so important because it's, it's like, it's like the, the opposite of American culture, which is like rush and hurry and connect and, and be connected and be with people and don't miss out and always be doing something. Like to, to, to intentionally say, no, 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 I'm actually going to begin to cultivate a practice, a regular practice of silence and solitude is so rare. It's the opposite of what our culture pushes. And so therefore I thought, I think we need a second week. And so just in case you forgot... The working definition that we have for silence and solitude is to intentionally withdraw, intentionally withdraw, to be alone and silent with ourselves and God. And that word withdraw there is so key. It's like, it's not, it's not that like, oh, I find myself accidentally alone. It's like, no, this is an intentional retreat from the, the rush and hustle of culture. This is an intentional withdrawal to get away from the hurry culture that we, that we have in America, to intentionally withdraw, to be alone and silent with ourselves and God. You're not Instagramming it. You don't have your phone with you. You're not like making a reel of your alone time. It's, it's, it is a sacred time with you and God, and stuff begins to come out. We said this last week, that can be kind of scary and intimidating, but this is, this is the idea. And so, Tonight we are talking about silence and solitude. It is part two. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but distraction, the idea of distraction, is a wonderful thing for little kids. 
You guys know this? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Grandparents know this, and they know this well. Grandparents know that distraction is an incredible tactic for little kids. They implement it all the time. Parents learn this with their kids. I had to learn it with my kids. But, but what we realize is, like, for instance, I have kids. I think you guys know that. My, <laughs> what? My, my, middle, my middle kid, my middle child, which Aaron and Zoe you have in your Sunday school class. Yeah. He's the best. He's so fun. He is, he is a cutie pie. He is three and a half. Girls, you all right? Okay. Is that? That's okay. I mean, you just, that's all right. Just called an audible there. That's a football term. Super Bowl is coming up. Um, I love sports. So my middle child, my middle child is three and a half. And he is figuring out how he feels about things. And oftentimes, he has emotions, but he doesn't have understanding. Parents in the room, can I get an amen? And so, and so he, he expresses those emotions. And they could be all over the spectrum of intensity. And so oftentimes, we will have breakdowns and meltdowns. And, and he's just crying. And you might even ask him. This is a classic parent question. Buddy, what's wrong? As if you're expecting a three-and-a-half-year-old to begin to articulate all the reasons why they're feeling what they're feeling. Sometimes they can use basic words and vocabulary. Oftentimes they can't. And so he always responds with, I don't know. Right? Like he's like shaking. It's like, okay, buddy. Well, well. <laughs> and so you approach it a different way. Well, do you, know, do you know why you're feeling that way? No. Okay. Did something, did something upset you? I don't know. Right? And so you just begin to like, I've learned this the hard way so many times. You just ask a, a dozen questions trying to get this three-and-a-half-year-old to articulate why he's upset, what got him that way, help him process the emotions, help him name them, ground them, begin to like apply them, prioritize them. And it's like, dude, he's three-and-a-half. And so one of the things I've learned over the years is that sometimes it is far more effective to use distraction rather than just to camp in the, the white-hot emotion. And so this is classic parent stuff, right? But like my kids will often wrestle and I'll, it'll go on for like five minutes and then all of a sudden I'll hear screaming and crying and I'll come in the room. What happened? And it's like the breakdown is happening. And so like Gray, my middle, might come up to me and be like, my elbow, right? And I'm like, all right, let me take a look at it. I'll look at it. Classic dad line up. Looks like I've got to chop off your arm. Yes, classic dad line. Thank you, Brooke. Right? And so that little phrase, what does it do? It, it it gets him distracted. It, it makes him laugh. He knows I'm not serious. It takes his mind to a different place. And then all of a sudden, it's like nothing ever happened. Food is a big distraction. I don't know if you guys know this. This also applies to my wife. She would not mind me saying that to you. She gets very hangry. But food, girls, it's, it's, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just in my experience being married to one, this, this seems to be a thing. It's hangriness, right? Food can be a distraction. There's a lot of distractions. Here's also what I've learned in life, though. Here's also what I've learned in life. Distraction is a great tactic for little kids, but is incredibly destructive as you get older. Distraction is an incredibly helpful tool for children and an incredibly destructive mechanism for teenagers and young adults. Here's what I mean. If you are going through something, and you are upset, that's great when you're three, but when you're 13, 14, 15, and up, you need to deal with those emotions 
You need to process those thoughts and feelings. You need to name them, identify them, sort them out, talk about them with someone. The problem is, as little kids, we, we learn the tactics of distraction, but rarely are we coached out of that. And so we literally grow up as teenagers and adults too. This is not just you guys, but adults too do not know how to sort their feelings out. Distraction looks different as you get older, but it's still applied. And it is incredibly destructive to your soul to not deal with what you're feeling. If you just constantly distract yourself, it is incredibly helpful when you're a child. It is wildly destructive the older you get. And I wonder if, if in this very room, there are, there are people, students, teenagers, who have never learned how to process their feelings in a healthy way, but have practiced distraction or escaping rather than embracing and you, you might be asking, dude, why are you bringing this up? I thought we were talking about silence and solitude. We are. But the angle I want to come at, from, come at it from tonight is this. <clears throat> silence and solitude, it's not just like, hey, it helps me in my prayer life. It helps me like, understand who I am and God better. I want to come at it tonight from the perspective of emotional health. And I want to talk about the role of silence and solitude within our emotional health. Now, this has been a journey I've been on and been kind of intentional with over the past few years. In fact, about two and a half years ago, three years ago, yeah, I guess three years ago now, some things started to come to the surface in my heart. And I knew, I knew where they were coming from, but I couldn't put words to it. I knew how they felt when they rose to the surface, but I couldn't identify, um, like, I couldn't identify how they're getting there. Like, I didn't know what the triggers were, right? And so what I discovered for me is that I had a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, okay? I can't drop many octaves lower, a lot, all right? I had a lot of pain and bitterness in my soul due to some childhood wounds that I had never really healed from. And never even really knew I needed to heal from. Like this is, this is the danger of distraction. You actually can take your attention away from things for years, decades. But I promise you it will surface again. It will come out. Like recently I was, I was watching, uh, I was watching a, a cartoon show with, with <laughs> Gray, my middle. And in this show there were these beetles that had built a mud statue I know. And then, and then there was a fox and a beaver that were playing together, and the beaver had built a dam. The problem is the dam was beginning to have cracks and leaks in it, and if it broke, it would wash away the beetle's mud statue. I know. Shocking. It's a problem. And so the fox and the beaver teamed up. And so they, they went over to the dam. There'd be like one little spout of water coming through, and so they'd put their hand on it. But the moment they put their hand on it, what happened? another spout. And so they'd put that, their hand on that. And then another one. And so they put their foot. And then another one. And they'd, they'd put their leg or their other foot. And another one. And they'd put their head. And another one. And the beaver would like swing his tail over. And before you knew it, they were all like contorted and twisted trying to plug this dam. And no matter what they did, it wasn't enough because stuff was beginning to leak out. And that is our lives. Like, we can convince ourselves if we try hard enough and contort ourselves enough and reach and stretch and cover things up that it will never spew out. But I'm telling you, 
if we are emotionally unhealthy, it will always spill out. It will always come to the surface. It will always break through the dam. It doesn't matter how strong it is, always. And for me, I'm dealing with things now that happened when I was like five, six, seven, that I didn't even know I needed to process. And over the past three years, the prayer of my heart has been, God, I give you permission to take an excavator to my soul. You have permission to dig as deep as you would like and unearth anything and bring it to the surface. And I, I, like, I'm not going to pretend like I was, wasn't scared to pray that. I'm terrified to pray that. And God has been faithful to that prayer. Stuff has come out that has broken me. And just, I've wept. I've wept in front of my boss, uh, Autumn, your dad. I've, I've been in his office just weeping like, Rob, what's wrong with me? Right? Like, because the dam finally broke. Like, I couldn't hold it together anymore. I've wept in front of my wife. I'm processing things that I didn't know I needed to process. And one of the things uh, that's been helping me do that is this book. It's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Has anyone ever read this book before? I'm advertising it as a very powerful book. Allison, I see that hand. It's a very powerful book. I, it's not like I, I didn't write it. I don't get royalties like, ooh, buy the book and I get money. No, I'm just saying like this has helped me in tremendous ways. And one of the premises of this book that this guy talks about is emotional health. And, and one of the things we need to understand is like we love to use the term my spiritual life. Hey, how's your spiritual life going? Oh, it's going great. It's going great. Cool, cool, cool. What about your like emotional life? Oh, it's going great. Like we love to we love to compartmentalize different parts of us. But here's what we need to understand. We are a holistic being and our physical, emotional and spiritual lives are actually one. And if we have a very very unhealthy physical life for instance, it's going to spill over into the other two. If we have a very unhealthy emotional life, it will spill over into the other two. If we have a very unhealthy spiritual life, it will spill over into the other. Like we are a holistic being. We love to compartmentalize. There's some advantages to understanding the distincts of them, but we are holistic. And one of the things this guy writes about is like if our emotional health is lagging behind, which for all of us in this room it is, by the way, if it's lagging behind, it will affect our spiritual life. And he's got this line in this, in this book. He talks about this guy that he met. The guy had believed in Jesus like 20 plus years. And one of the things that gentleman realized is, I'm not a 20-year-old Christian. I'm a one-year-old Christian 20 times over. Like I've never grown out of the baby stage of believing in Jesus because my emotional health was so broken. If our emotional health is lagging, it will affect our spirituality. This book has helped me tremendously in understanding some better practices in my emotional health, which is why I want to give it away tonight. I know. If who, who can pronounce, who knows how to pronounce his last name? S-C-A-Z-Z-E-R-O. No. No. What? No, sorry. You're, you're all wrong. You're all wrong. No one gets it. No, I'm just kidding. How about this? Just who, who needs it? Evie, here you go. Evie. That's to Evie Blake. Make sure Evie gets it. And if you guys, hey, if you want a copy, we actually sell that book. <laughs> I don't get the money, but, but it goes to the ministry. Five bucks. It's, it's really discounted. We sell it in the youth area. And Evie, hey, there's some highlights and underlines in there. That's like spark notes. It's already, yeah, I know. Hey, but I would say process what you're reading because it, it will stir up some stuff. I, I promise. Okay, here we go. So emotional health. The dam is breaking. We cannot hide it, right? So I want to look at a story tonight. 
I want to look at a story tonight of uh, someone in the Bible who is on a journey, I think, of emotional health. Uh, this is a, a guy in the Old Testament. His name is Elijah, all right? There's someone else in the Old Testament named Elisha. I'm not talking about S-H. I'm talking about J, Elijah. Elijah is a prophet of God. A prophet has a distinct role. Their role is to foretell and foretell the Word of God, to speak on God's behalf, and to talk about things that will come in the future, foretell and foretell. Elijah is a prophet in the north of Israel. So in this time where he, when he's living, the nation of Israel is in a civil war. They are, they are battling each other. And the north is comprised of like 10 different tribes or nations, and the south has two nations. The south is referred to as Judah. And the, the two tribes in the south are kind of still faithful to God, like they're kind of still following God, <laughs> kind of. And all 10 in the north are just like wicked, man. They have fallen, they have gone astray, they are worshiping idols and false gods, they are not faithful to God, and they've got this super petty king and vengeful king, and, and Elijah is a prophet to the north, and so he's got his work cut out for him. It is not a time that you would really desire to be a prophet. Like, your role is to go around to those 10 nations and tell them all what God has to say to them and call them to be faithful to him, and they are worshiping other gods, and they are, um, uh, they've killed a lot of God's prophets in some pretty brutal ways. It, like, your, your death threat is high, right? And so Elijah is a prophet to the north. And so Elijah does this incredible thing where he, he goes into the north, and he challenges the prophets up there. I mean, in this huge, like, dramatic fashion, he says, hey, gather up all your prophets, meet me on that mountain, and they go to the top of this mountain named Mount Carmel. And so the 450 prophets of this false god named Baal, all right, there's a little stutter there, Baal, the 450 prophets of this false god are there, and then 400 other prophets of, of a different uh, thing are there. And so there's at least 850 people on the mountain with him, and then all of Israel, it's like an exaggerated way to say a lot of people, come out to see it as well. And Elijah says this, he, he's, he's asked for no rain uh, for three years, and so it hasn't rained in the whole country for three years. And that may not seem like a huge deal to you, but remember, this is like, you can't just Amazon Prime like some avocados to your house if you're like, any of my hipster toast, right? Like you, you can't just bring them in. So without rain, there's no crops. Without crops, there is death. And Elijah has like called for no rain, three years without rain. I know Elijah's like, dude, what's up? But you remember, this is like part of his job, doing what God tells him to do. And so he challenges these guys and he says, hey, let's have a standoff. Gather up everyone you want and let's put like a sacrifice out. You guys pray to your God. Do anything you want for as long as you want. Pray to your God that fire would fall down from heaven and ignite this offering. And then I'll pray to my God that fire would fall from heaven and ignite this offering. And the God who answers is the one true God. It's like, ooh, Elijah. Like, this dude's bold. He's like, let's go toe to toe. Pray to your God. See if he answers. I'll pray to mine. And so the, the prophets of Baal are going nuts, man. Like they're dancing, they're having these ceremonies. They've got like these swords and they're like, like slashing themselves. Like this huge, 1 Kings 18, you can read all about it. They're, they're having this huge thing and Elijah's like taunting them. And, and he's like, oh, maybe your God doesn't hear you. Like maybe he's asleep. He even says that maybe he's like going to the bathroom. Maybe he's relieving himself. Like Elijah is taunting them to no end. 
And then it's his turn, and he's like, God, show them you're the one true God. And fire falls down from heaven, and everyone is like, oh my gosh, God is the one true God. And they all turn and worship God. And Elijah has this huge monumental victory, like mountaintop experience, right? And immediately he goes from this. He receives a death threat. Like there's this evil woman named Jezebel, and she's like, I will kill you. And that one, that one death threat sends him into this spiral of depression. It's like, it's like, have you ever been there? Like you're having the best week of your life and like one person makes just the right comment or you come across one thing on social media, just the right one, and you just crash, right? Elijah is on this huge monumental victory and then sinks into deep depression because of this one comment. That's where we're picking up the story. First Kings 19, turn there if you have your Bibles. If you don't, we've got it on the screen. It's in the Old Testament. Table of contents might be helpful in the beginning of your Bibles, feel free to use that. Find the page number. I find it always helpful to read along here. Smell the pages while we're reading. All right, 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel, Jezebel's that evil woman, what Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. That's the death threat. I will kill you by this time tomorrow. And then Elijah was afraid. He, wrote, he arose and ran for his life. He was literally scared to death and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. So Elijah's up north in those 10 tribes up north and he runs to the south. He's fleeing for his life. He runs the length of the entire nation of Israel to Beersheba down in the south, and he left his servant there. Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So he is literally embracing the definition of our silence and solitude. He is withdrawing to be alone with himself and God. He left his servant there, and he goes a day's journey into the wilderness. If you remember from last week's teaching, he goes a day's journey into the lonely place. And then he came and he sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, Is it enough now, O Lord? Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. So I don't want to make light of this. Elijah is, is in a dark place. A couple of years ago, we did a series called Peace and Pain. And in that series, we, we wrapped up that series by talking uh, about depression and suicide. And we looked at the story of Elijah. This prayer that he's praying is one of suicidal ideations. Take my life, God. I'm done. Like It, it takes, it takes a, a certain amount of emotional disruption to get to this place. He is at the end of himself. He prays this prayer. And we know, like, it's not like, he's, it's not like he doesn't know how to pray. Like, he just called down fire from heaven. Like, this is a bold prophet of God. He understands the Word of God. He understands how to deliver the Word of God. And yet, he kind of finds himself at the end of himself without words and just says, God, take my life. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, like, angel started shaking him. <laughs> it's like, arise, eat. Don't sleep right now. You need food. Arise and eat. Elijah looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on some hot stones and a jar of water. I don't know about you guys. Maybe an angel has baked you a cake before. It's never happened to me. This seems like an interesting interaction. I want to try some angel cake. Made him a cake, 
baked over hot stones, left him some water. He ate and he drank and he lay down again. He went back to sleep. This may not seem super spiritual, but there's something interesting happening here. And then the angel of the Lord came again a second time, touched him, and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank more. And then he went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights, to Horeb, the mountain of God. Mount Horeb is where Moses received the Ten Commandments. Very significant place in the faith of Israel. Now, what's going on here? Elijah is at the end of himself. He has reached a place of deep darkness, depression, suicide, desiring for God to take his life. I mean, he is in an unhealthy place. He, he had this enormous victory. He went toe-to-toe with 850 prophets belonging to Baal. With all the confidence and courage and bravery and faith in God, he challenged them to display which God is the real God. They're praying all day with no answer. He prays one time and God answers. And it's like, man... To go from that mountaintop to this valley seems so odd. But for those of you in the room who who may struggle with anxiety and sadness and depression and things like that, you know. You know how easy it is to experience this crash. And, And you may know that all it takes is just one comment, one thing, one look, one trigger, one memory. And that's what Elijah is experiencing. He had one thing. He had a death threat. This woman named Jezebel said, I'm I'm coming for you. And it it just caused him to crash. And he's at the end of himself. He's exhausted. He's fatigued. And he comes to this place utterly done. And and he prays this prayer to God. And God sends an angel. This is so interesting. Like we read this and we're like, okay, let's, let's keep reading. But hear the significance of this. God sends an angel to make food for Elijah and gather water. And the angel instructs him to eat and drink. And Elijah does that. He eats and he drinks and he sleeps. And he eats and he drinks and he sleeps. Like this is his rhythm right now. And this gets back to to what I was saying in the beginning. Like we love to compartmentalize like, oh, hey, how's your spiritual life doing? Oh, it's great. Cool, cool, cool. How's your physical life? I mean, it's, I'm not hitting my New Year's goals yet, but it's okay. Like, okay, cool. How's your emotional life, right? We love to compartmentalize and separate those things, but we are a holistic being. And oftentimes, oftentimes we struggle to experience God, and we struggle, we struggle to, to feel God, and yet we're not taking care of some of our physical needs, like, I remember in college, man, I, I, would, I had an 8 a.m. class, and oftentimes I would stay up until 3 a.m. or 4 a.m., not like doing homework, um, although you should if you need to. I, for me, I was not. And I would stay up super late and eat um, my, <laughs> my this friend. We would love to get uh, jelly bellies and, and set out all the beans, jelly beans, and categorize them like based on their flavor. And then we would begin to like mix them. Like we made like jelly belly concoctions. Like, oh, this flavor with that flavor tastes really good. Like we would just try to discover. So we're literally stuffing ourselves with sugar into the wee hours of the night. We're staying up super late. And then we would wake up at 8 a.m. and go and take exams. And it's like, dude, you have no shot. You have no hope of doing well on this test. Why? Because you're not taking care of your physical stuff. Like, and yet we approach God in this way. It's like, 
It's like we don't have good rhythms of rest in our life. We don't have margins and boundaries. We don't say no to the right things. We're always in a rush. We're always on the go. We're so distracted. We, we, we just dive into every social thing we can because we, we fear missing out. Like we consume all this junk food for our soul. We, and maybe even like real, we consume junk food. Like we don't take care of physical life. And then we come to these places where we're just like, I don't feel God. And we have such a hard time connecting the dots of like, okay, but you are a holistic being. You, you can't just neglect this entire category of your life and expect to engage in these deep things with God. And Elijah is there. Look, I mean, don't, over, don't overlook the significance of what the angel is doing. He's taking care of Elijah's physical needs. So oftentimes, meeting our physical needs prepares us to meet our spiritual needs. This can be such an easy thing to overlook in this passage even. It's like, is that really that big a deal? Yeah, it is. Because look, Elijah is, is, is at the end of himself and he is praying out to God, I'm done. And God doesn't coach him up. He's like, Elijah, come on, you're my boy, dude. Suck it up. You're a prophet. What does God do? You know what you need? A nap, some cake, some water. Right? That is, that is spiritual. I'm t- if you are struggling, hey, hear me. If you are struggling to feel God, if you are struggling to pray, go take a nap, go eat some cake, and drink some water, and watch what it does for your soul, okay? That is direct application from the Bible. If you look, if you look at Jesus, Jesus is a man that knew how to take naps and take them well. And I don't, it's not just this random like, oh, wow, Jesus is asleep in the midst of a storm. Oh, I guess he's God, and he's trying to teach them some weird lesson about trust. No, like, dude is tired, and he's like, I think I'll take a nap. Like, he knows how to take care of his body so that he can cultivate his soul. When you're in high school, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. I remember it being your age, and it's like, dude, I could pull all-nighters, and I'm great the next day. I get it. But there is such a thing as trajectory. Habits now are habits later. I promise it catches up. Take care of your physical needs, and you'll cultivate spiritual needs as well. God answers Elijah's prayer by meeting his physical needs. So often meeting our physical needs prepares us to meet our spiritual needs. So then Elijah gets up. Look at verse 8. He arose, he ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that 40 days, food for 40 days and 40 nights, to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Where, where Moses met God and received the Ten Commandments. So, so get this, from where Elijah was to Mount Hora, it was 260 miles, all right? Now, that may seem like a lot to you, but any runners in the room? Who, who can, like, run a, a five-minute mile? Anyone can run a five-minute mile? You guys are impressive, man. I've never in my life, ever in my life. Really? <laughs> Easy, bro. I've never been able to run a five-minute mile Five. Okay, five. Now, what about just like, has anyone ever tried to run and you're like, I hate running? This is me, by the way. I hate running so much. Yes. And so you do that weird thing where you like, you like jog, but then kind of like fast walk and then jog a little bit and fast. That's, that's so me. So when I do that, when I do that, I can usually hit a mile around 12 minutes. Okay. You guys are like, oh, that's so slow. Save it. All right. I hate running. All right. But here's my point. Here's my point. Elijah is 260 miles away from Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And it, he, he takes this journey 40 days and 40 
nights. If you do that math, and I'm going to do it for you, he is traveling at one half of a mile per hour. Half a mile per hour. Let me put it in perspective. That is crawling along. That is a snail's pace. A normal person, like just averagely healthy, could walk this journey in about two weeks, 14 days. And Elijah takes a month and a half. And he's operating off of the cake that the angel baked him, the angel cake. He's not eating anything else. He's fasting during this time. He's operating off of the strength of that food and that water for the next month and a half. And he is going at a snail's pace. Literally, it's like, like this. Right? Half a mile per hour. It's like, why? Why wouldn't he just walk like a normal person and get there in two weeks? I mean, that's what Americans do, right? Always in a hurry. Efficient. Man, I bet you could do it in one week if you really put some zip in your feet. And he's like taking a month and a half. Elijah is withdrawing to the lonely place. It's not about efficiency. It's not about how quick can I get there. He's withdrawing to the lonely place to be alone with him and God and how he's feeling. He's processing. He's sorting out his emotions, his anger, his frustration, his doubts, his pain. Here's what's amazing to me about this. Does God speak to him during these 40 days and 40 nights? Is there a word? Is there a peep from God? You see anything there? No. It's like, dude, what? Like, God, speak. I mean, isn't that so us? Like, how many of you have ever decided, you know what, I'm going to start practicing prayer. I'm going I'm to try this thing out. And you go to your room after a busy day. You got to be up early for school, whatever. You go to your room and you're like, all right, God, let me try this prayer thing out. Um, <clears throat> could you speak to me, please? You wait about like 10 seconds. You're like, I don't get this. This doesn't work. And you never, like, it's done. Like, that's your attempt at prayer, right? Like, God didn't answer me. Okay, is God on your timeline? Did you wait for God? Like, what, what is Elijah doing? Is he just stuck in place? No. He's, he's not at the end of himself anymore. He's not just under the bush asking God to take his life. What is he doing? He, he has movement. There's, there's, there's movement to his life. He's seeking God and, and waiting on God, but God is not speaking. And this is significant. Because so often we think that when we're waiting on God, if we're not hearing from God, everything is wasted. That time was wasted. I mean, how long does it take for God to answer this prayer? As you get older, you'll realize you will pray certain things for decades and still be waiting on them. There's people in my life I've been praying for to come to know Jesus for over a decade, and they are still so far from him. So is God just not answering? No, it's like, dude, there's a waiting. You, you engage in this waiting. And, and we have to be honest with ourselves as Americans who love efficient and love microwaves more than crockpots. And also, like, we are not good at this. What does Elijah understand? What does he learn in this? What can we learn? It's that waiting time is not wasted time. Like there is something going on in these 40 days in the lonely place, crawling along at a snail's pace to get to this mountain. This is not the way of, of the typical 
like how we would think, right? Like honestly, like let's be honest, because I have this conversation with students all the time. Students come up to me like, dude, I'm just not feeling God anymore. You know when I felt him? When did you feel him? At the epic retreat. That's when I felt him, man. Right, I know. Because we crafted this weekend experience for you that has crazy elements and, and it's sensory and there's hype music and, and preaching and you guys are like away from the distractions of life. We take you to a designated area and it's not as easy to get distracted and you're spending time in community and you're intentionally reading your Bible and you're praying and you're seeing God move and you're processing those things together and you're doing, you're doing all, like, yeah, of course, you're feeling God. But then you come back to real life and it's like, oh, God's not here, man. I, mean, I, I just don't feel him anymore. You know what's amazing to me about Elijah here? Elijah on Mount Carmel just had the literal mountaintop experience. Called down fire from heaven, right? Most of us in this room, if we are struggling in our faith, we are not going a day's journey into the wilderness to find a a broom uh, bush. Where are we going? We're going back to Mount Carmel. I know I felt God there. I'll just go back there where it was hype. On the mountaintop, I'll call down fire just for my personal self so I can feel God again, right? That's how most of us would deal with what Elijah's dealing with. The idea of retreating into the lonely place to be alone with our thoughts, just us and God, and remain there and wait there is so foreign to our categories of faith. We want the next mountaintop. We want the next hype. We want the next, like, yo, let's go, energy. Feel it. We'd be right back in Mount Carmel trying to call down fire from heaven again. What does Elijah do? Withdraws to the lonely place by himself. Remember, he left his servant by himself, sorting out how he's feeling, his emotions, his doubts, his frustrations, his fears, half a mile per hour for 40 days while he's fasting. And does God speak to him during that time? No. I dare say most of us in this room would get frustrated and be like, God's not in this. I'm not hearing him. I don't feel him. He's not speaking to me, so I'm out. Waiting time is not wasted time. There's something more going on. So eventually Elijah reaches Mount Horeb after 40 days. Verse 9, he came to a cave and he lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Even then, he's been seeking God and waiting on God to speak, and God comes to him in the form of clarity and a statement? No. Comes to him in the form of a question. Oh, Elijah, why are you here? Like, what are you, what a, what a unexpected surprise. No, God's like, what are you doing here? God meets Elijah with a question, which is Very much like God, if you read Jesus throughout the Gospels, questions are like his favorite go-to to provoke thought. Why are you here, Elijah? I think think God wants Elijah to define his emotions. Why are you here? Look at how Elijah answers. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left and they seek my life to take it away. So Elijah's like super like focused on himself. He names all these things that are happening, the contexts of life. Life's so hard, man. 
It's so unfair. You don't even know, God. You don't know what it's like down here. I'm the only one who cares. That's literally like, I'm the only one left. And God said to him, go out, stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a strong wind tore the mountains and broke it into pieces, the rocks, broken pieces, the rocks before the Lord, before Yahweh. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Now, if you know the story of Moses, when Moses stood here on Mount Horeb to receive the Ten Commandments, what engulfed Moses? A huge storm, and the storm had lightning, and the storm had wind, and the storm had fire, and there was an earthquake that shook the mountain. It's literally like Elijah goes back to the same mountain where Moses was, and God gives Elijah the exact same circumstances that Moses had, and yet God wasn't in those things. And it's like sometimes we feel like if I can just replicate, if I can just replicate a past experience or even like something someone else has done, then I'll somehow be able to twist God's arm and he'll show up. He shows up in the big stuff, in the hype. Mm, Not always. And after the fire and the wind and the earthquake, the sound of a low whisper. When Elijah heard the whisper, he wrapped his face in his cloak. He went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Same question as before. Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, am the only one left. And they seek my life to take it away. It's the exact same answer as before, right? It's like, what, Elijah, dude, come on, man, this was your chance. And so it's so mysterious and it's curious, but I can't help but wonder, even though it's the same response from Elijah, I can't help but wonder if it might be in a different tone. Like maybe it's not so self-centered, maybe it's not so dramatic, and maybe it's not so like, woe is me. Maybe it's just Elijah being honest with like, God, here's the deal, this is how I'm feeling. How does God respond? God said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, Syria and Syria, and Jehu. Hey, Old Testament names are hard. Give me some grace. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shapat, of Abel-Mahulah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. The one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. And yet I'll leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So what does God say? God basically says, Elijah, bud, I'm going to take care of it. It's okay. I've got a plan. And you're not the only one. There's 7,000 people. There's 7,000 knees that have not bowed to Baal. You're, you're, buddy, I'm, I'm taking care of stuff. But what's amazing about this scene between Elijah and God is that what we learn here is I think we are invited into the presence of God while still carrying our baggage. So often we think, dude, 
I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't come to church until I deal with my crap. I, like, I, I, can't, I can't pray to God until I, until I fix my problems. I, like, dude, God, he's not going to forgive me for everything I've done. Like, I, I've got to somehow fix these things or, or earn my way into his presence or work hard enough. Or, I mean, I've had, I've had this conversation with, with people in the church and people outside of the church who say the same thing. I've got to clean my life up first, and then I'll start a relationship with God. It's like, dude, no. It's like God invites us into his presence while we still carry our baggage. Elijah, his prayer is different than we saw in the beginning of the chapter. He's not at the end of himself. He has more words. He's processed some of his feelings. His emotional health is on the rise. But he's still, like, he's still working through his stuff. And yet he takes all of that before God. He's honest with God about how he's feeling. And I think for so many of us, the idea of silence and solitude is terrifying because it means we would have to sit there in our feelings with God. Like, have you ever had a friend in your friend group and when you guys hang out in the group, it's really normal? But if you've ever found yourself one-on-one with that person, it's like super awkward. It's like, well, all of a sudden we, we don't even know how to talk. You all ever, do you guys have that person in your friend group? Yeah? <laughs> some of you guys are like, this guy. I think for some of us, it's like, yeah, we, we love the idea of worshiping God when we come together in this room, together, big, small group, I can talk about God. Coming to church, I can talk about God. But the idea of getting alone with God, withdrawing into silence and solitude, just ourselves and God, is terrifying because it's like, ah, dude, I'd have to deal with my stuff. Yeah, you would. Because so many of us practice escapism rather than engaging. It's like, guys, binging on social media will not fix your soul. Binging Netflix will not fix your soul. Consumerism and just buying new things will not fix your soul. Shallow relationships in your life will not fix your soul. Like, oh, I'm feeling lonely. What should I do? I'll strike up another relationship. Oh, Valentine's Day is around the corner. I don't want to feel alone. I'll get a boyfriend. It's like, that will not fix your soul. It doesn't deal with your emotions. It just escapes from them. Elijah comes to God bearing everything. He has the boldness and the bravery to name how he's feeling. Don't overlook that. It took so much courage to do what he did. And how does God respond? God tells him what his next steps are. So here's the deal. The closing thought for tonight is a little bit of a long idea. But if we can grasp it, I I think it's powerful and maybe even life-changing. It is often through the practice of silence and solitude, braving the wandering of our emotions and doubts that serves as a catalyst for transformation within our souls. It is in that lonely place, in the silence, in the whisper, that we receive a clearer understanding on what we're feeling, how God cares for us, and our next step within his plan. Like, how many of you in the room right now, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you would honestly say, I wish I understood my emotions better? How many of you in the room, thank you for raising your hands. You didn't have to, but thank you. I wish I understood why I feel what I feel. I wish I could, I wish I had better clarity on my emotions. They feel all over the place. How many of you in the room would say, I wish I understood how God cares for me in the midst of 
in the midst of my anger and my fear and my depression and my anxiety and my loneliness, how many of you wish you could understand how God cares for you? Like, God, where's my angel cake? Right? And how many of you in the room would be desperate just to understand, God, what is my next step in life? What do I do next? Look at this this interaction with Elijah. In this interaction, God reveals to Elijah how God loves him and takes care of him in the midst of his depression and loneliness and sadness. He invites Elijah to process those things, giving Elijah better clarity on what he's feeling. And then God tells him what to do next. Go here, anoint that king, get Elisha, here's what we're going to do. Like he gives him clarity on the next step. God gives Elijah clarity on what he's feeling, clarity on how God takes care of him and loves him and how God is in control of everything ultimately, and clarity on what to do next. But guess what? It only came through withdrawing into the lonely place. Notice, God didn't do any of these things when Elijah went to the broom uh, tree, the broom bush. God took care of his physical needs, but he didn't reveal a lot of this stuff. God didn't speak to him in the 40 days and 40 nights of wandering. There is a process that takes place. There's a wandering, there's a waiting that takes place. And for so many of us, we become impatient and discouraged and distracted. We just look for the next thing, the quick fix, the band-aid. When we were kids, we learned that distraction could take our mind off of the pain of our bodies. As we grew older, we kind of convinced ourselves maybe distraction could take our mind off the pain of our souls. It will kill you if you do not deal with your emotions in a right way, your soul will begin to deteriorate. It is poison to distract yourself from your feelings. And here's the amazing thing. We serve a God who doesn't condemn us, who doesn't shun us, who who doesn't rebuke us when we come to him with those feelings. The story of Elijah and God is amazing because Elijah comes bearing it all. I mean, the wild emotional swings that this prophet of God has. And God's like, buddy, it's okay. I got you. Here's some bread. Here's some water. Let me speak to you. Let me tell you what I'm doing behind the scenes. Let me tell you what you need to do next. But it is in the lonely place. It is in silence and solitude that we begin to discover those things. Not distraction. Not not escaping but engaging and embracing the quiet and the lonely place. That is when our souls begin to speak with God the Father and understand what is our next step? How do you care for me? Why am I feeling this way? It happens in silence and solitude. If you are not regularly practicing this habit, I promise you your your grasp on your emotional clarity will be very loose. Because we can't compartmentalize emotional, physical, and spiritual. We are a holistic being, and we've got to take care of our emotions if we hope to engage in a spiritual way as well. So, do you have the courage to try silence and solitude as a regular practice in your life? For that is where you hear the voice of God. That's where you gain clarity on your feelings and what God is doing, and how he cares for you. So I encourage you guys, begin to cultivate that practice. Don't let this just be a sermon you hear, and you're like, all right, cool, we'll go home now. 
cultivate the practice, and begin to experience the presence and voice of God. Let's pray. Jesus, I think a very simple prayer tonight. Help us build this practice into our life. Help us have the courage to step into the unknown. So many of us have buried so many things in our soul and we're so scared to unearth them. We're so scared of what would come to the surface. We don't even know how to deal with them. Jesus, I pray you would begin to lead us down a path of healing, of conversations with people in our lives, people who can help counsel and guide us through our emotions and what we're feeling. And Jesus, I pray that we would begin to practice this uh, habit of silence and solitude as a regular way of living. You modeled this to us, Jesus, and you seem to be at peace, and you seem to understand how God was moving, and you seem to understand what your next step was. Would you help us not distract ourselves, but willingly embrace the lonely place to engage with the presence of God? For the sake of our emotional health, we need this. We ask that you would help us do it, Jesus, in your name. Amen.